Well, Happy New Year and welcome to episode 9 of The Afterward, our series of conversations on books, reading, and the church, brought to you by the Westminster Bookstore. In just a minute, our host, Johnny Gibson, will be interviewing Dr. Peter Williams for a conversation on studying God's Word in the original languages. Uh, Dr. Williams is the head of Tyndale House in Cambridge. He's also a member of the Translation Oversight Committee for the ESV Bible. On top of that, he's the editor for the Tyndale House uh, Greek New Testament, uh, published by Crossway, and the author of a personal favorite uh, little book of mine called Can We Trust the Gospels? Now, if uh, maybe you're tempted to skip this episode because you don't know the original languages or don't ever plan on studying them, uh, please, please don't. Uh, I think that if you read the Bible in any capacity, uh, that you'll find this uh, conversation uh, to be rich and full of insight from two world-class biblical scholars. So with that, let me hand it over to Peter and Johnny with a question. Uh, both of you have studied language extensively and now teach Hebrew or Greek uh, to, to students at the seminary level. Uh, what do you think is a benefit of knowing and studying uh, God's Word in its original languages? Johnny? Uh, well, I'd, uh, let me give two quotes and two illustrations. Uh, the first quote is by a Jewish poet who said that, um, Reading the Bible through a translation is like uh, kissing the bride through a veil. And uh, the other quote is by Martin Luther, who said that the original languages is like the sheath of the sword of the word of God. And uh, the more you know the languages, the sharper and more forceful and fresh your uh, teaching can be. Uh, the, the illustration I use uh, with my students here is uh, I say to them that what, reading the Bible in the original languages uh, it's a bit like watching, say, uh, the Super Bowl um, on TV in high definition and in slow motion when there's a touchdown. Um, I think we read um, language, uh, the Bible, in a second language. We read it more slowly and more carefully, and we see things in high definition. So if you're reading your English Bible, you still see the same thing. You hear the same story. Uh, but it's maybe a bit like watching that Super Bowl event in black and white or just on ordinary TV and with no rewind or slow motion. Uh, but the original languages, they make you slow down they make you go word by word and you start to see things more clearly and brightly. And I think as a preacher or as a lecturer or as a writer, then your your speaking and writing becomes more precise and clear and forceful and fresh. So that that's my the thought on the benefit of the original languages. Uh, Pete, what about you? You've been working in these languages for a lot longer than I have. What are your reasons that you think people should study them? Yeah, well, I would I would agree with what you said. I also would just come at it from the angle of, well, if Christ said, quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, then the human duty is to be obsessed with the question of what precisely does God say? That's our, our, our biggest duty. So, of course, that drives you to try and be as scientific as you can be and precise as you can be about what God's saying. Now, why do we bother freshly grinding coffee or going to all the effort we do of, uh, you know, the right pressure and all this sort of stuff on, on our cappuccinos and so on? Because 
people say, well, th this really matters. The coffee really matters. Well, OK, wouldn't shouldn't we be saying that about g what God has to say or people get expert on how they cook their beef and their steaks and all this sort of stuff, the effort people put into it. Why wouldn't you have the same idea of being a connoisseur in relation to what God has to say, which is far more important than anything we eat or drink? Uh, I'd also say that there's a feature of scripture, which it is very um, intertextual, I'd say. Uh, that's a, 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 a highfalutin word for saying just that there's a vast amount of cross-reference within scripture, often linked by specific words. And if you want precisely to follow that and um, have the enjoyment of that, the appreciation of that, uh, the precise understanding of that, you really will find it very helpful to learn the original languages to some degree. And again, it's not a question of being uh, perfect or a native speaker or anything. It's really a, a question of uh, using the time and mind that God's uh, given us and uh, applying it to those precise questions of following what exactly is God saying here. Yeah, that's very helpful. I like I like that illustration about the uh, uh, the food spending time. Cooking shows are so big these days on Netflix and all of that, and um, it's a great illustration for uh, getting excited about the Word of God, which is the best food uh, to be reading and uh, receiving. Uh, were you um, always a linguist yourself, or did, was this something that came later on to you? Um. I, I thought, you know, in my early teens, I would be a scientist. But but actually, I, I, had, I went to a school in uh, in the north of England where I had the privilege of starting Greek when I was 14. I'd already started Latin since I was um, 12. And I wanted to become a Bible translator by about the age of 16. So that drove me to want to become uh, someone who knew Hebrew, I, I got a school prize uh, of a Greek dictionary, um, Brown Driver Briggs di Greek, di uh, sorry, Hebrew dictionary when I was 16. So I didn't start Hebrew for another four years after that. It was desperately time waiting, but I knew yeah. from age 16 I wanted to learn it. Yeah. And uh, who have been some of your influences early on to get into the languages, books or people that encourage It was people. So, you know, I had uh, wonderful uh, teachers uh, and uh, at school and at university, even a uh, college tutor who was an atheist, was very influential in, in making sure we read lots of primary texts. Um, and that was very helpful. Uh, so, yes, I've been, uh, God's put people in, in my way who, who've inspired me. None of those were Christian teachers. Yeah. And uh, what about someone who's listening who would like to learn the original languages but don't really know where to begin? Uh, have you any tips of where they could start? Well, I think there are many good ways of starting. What you've got to remember is a little knowledge is not a dangerous thing, provided you know you have a little knowledge. And it's also not a dangerous thing, provided you're surrounded by people who have more knowledge. So just as um, if I were to start spouting about um, nutrition uh, at a social event, very quickly uh, there would be other people who would have strong ideas about this and, and that would, would uh, call me to account in a sense. And if someone starts spouting about biblical language and there are lots of other people who know things, then 
they won't get very far. The only danger is if no one has a clue and then they start spouting on. So don't be afraid of a small amount of knowledge. And you can come at a, a language from two different ways, really. You can come up from the little bits of sentences and, and you start getting little sentences and building them into longer sentences, or you can just plunge in the deep end of the pool. Uh, and I think I, I quite like that um, uh, method. And um, I would say start reading some uh, and learn the grammar as you go along. Uh, I, my reason for that is I think you will find a reward in that. So John's gospel is a is a simple vocabulary gospel. It's a limited vocabulary yeah. gospel, very deep. And I would start at John 1, 1 with an interlinear and I would start with lining the words up. Then I'd learn a bit of grammar. Then I'd go back and, and, and I, I would I would keep those two things on the boil, but keep reading and learning. Because the great thing is you can learn John 1, 1 and it doesn't change. It's going to be the same words. There are different views on how you pronounce it, but basically it's the same set of words. So I, I would be encouraging people to start with that. Um, OK. And uh, what about those who have learned their languages, say at seminary and they're in the pastorate and they've uh, let them slip? Any uh, advice there on how they can get them back after all that investment? Yes. Well, they should reflect on what it means to be a pastor. Uh, the, the, the idea of being a pastor is is to do with feeding uh, the sheep. And so do they want to, um, again, uh, be involved in high quality food production or are they prepared to pass people on uh, less nutritious ready meals? And I, I think really to see themselves as people who lead the sheep behind beside the best grass, I think is part of it. So they need to understand who they are as pastors um, and maybe um, drop some uh, seemingly important other things which may be distracting them from that actual uh, core job. So I'd say the shepherd is the feeder and protector. That's that's the, 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 the really important jobs that they have. And what is there that doesn't come under the heading of feeding or protecting, which they can drop? Mm, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, uh, what, what do you do for uh, vocabulary retention? Do you just read lots or do you actually do your flashcards still or do you yeah, encourage people I, I've, to do I've them? never really done flashcards, I've got to say. But again, pe different people are different. I mean, some people like flashcards. That's That's how they work. Some people like reading paradigms. I just tend to read the text um and um it it can give you a, a full sense of security that you know uh what what it means because you've seen the word so many times but if you were asked to translate uh you might mm. struggle more but i think um don't don't be afraid of that you can always get out an english translation or another translation what you said earlier on about reading the original just slows you down i think is very helpful and some of your readers may know a language in addition to English, like Spanish or whatever. I'd say also reading the Bible in multiple languages, even modern languages, can help you just slow you down, uh, compare things carefully, see what's going on. Mm. Now, you and uh, another colleague there at Tyndale, uh, Dirk Yonkin, have uh, been involved in recent years of producing a Greek New Testament mm -hmm. edition uh, out of Tyndale House, uh, published by Crossway. Uh, what was the vision behind producing that? There's other editions out there, Nestle Island, yeah. the United Bible Society. Why did you decide to do your own edition? 
Well, we think that obviously God's word is the most important thing there is. And so as an act of worship to seek to produce the best possible printing uh, of that uh, was our desire. And it's something from which we benefited personally in production. But also we felt that there were things that we could do uh, which would uh, be a benefit. So we uh, followed a very Protestant line of reasoning, which is to go back to the original manuscripts, original sources, and seek to follow them as closely as possible. So when you open up our text, even little things like paragraph marks, which I'm not saying are part of what God has marked as, as inspired, but even those things we wanted to follow early manuscripts, even in issues of spelling. And we do think that that enables you to see things that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, modern, many other modern editions, they, they mark quotations in ways which are quite modern. They mark paragraphs in ways that are quite modern. Uh, and we want to strip that out and, in a sense, get to as plain a text as we could. So when we produced our edition, after an introduction of just over one page, you're then into the Greek text itself, and we try to have no interruptions in the Greek text uh, other than verse numbers, which we did concede to have, um, so that you're not distracted in reading and you get to mm -hmm. see some things that you've not seen before, uh, which uh, fascinating, really, in terms of um, uh, the, the structure of, of, of passages. Is there one example that you can give that stands out for you? Well, I mean, there are quite a few, but I'll give you one, for instance, from the third epistle of John, where when we followed the manuscripts and they don't not all the manuscripts have exactly the same paragraphs. We found it went into four paragraphs and um, the uh, divisions in, in it's only a one chapter epistle uh, for a new paragraph, obviously verse one, then verse nine, 11 and 13. And in all of those cases, we found that the fifth word um, was but, except for in verse 11, where it's the sixth word, because it begins beloved. So it begins, uh, verse nine, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to have the preeminence. Verse 11, beloved, don't imitate the bad, but the good. And then uh, verse 13, I have much had much to write to you, but I don't want to... Um, uh, write through uh, ink and read. And, and that would be an example. Mm. Um, another case would be Mark chapter four, where um, Jesus has this parable of the sower. And what we found is that he says, um, listen, and then behold, a sower went out to sow. So it's one is oral and the other one is visual. And we found surprisingly that four of the five earliest manuscripts put the paragraph division not before his first word, but after his first word. So he says, listen, and you have a pause, and then the mind's imagination needs to visualize this sower going out to sow. Then, of course, he gets to the end of the parable and says, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. And again, he ends another um, uh, paragraph in the same chapter, uh, verse 23, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. And so you suddenly see this emphasis on hearing coming through that structure, which wouldn't otherwise. Uh, and so that, again, was by looking very closely at the early manuscripts and saying, we care about this and we don't want to impose um, our view on this. Um, there is another um, slightly controversial one, 
in uh, Ephesians 5, 21 to 22, uh, where exactly do you put the paragraph mark? Where well, we actually had uh, a new paragraph beginning at 522 about wives submitting to their husbands and a bit about submitting to each other as the end of the last paragraph. Now, mm. how that exactly feeds into uh, things, uh, you know, is it, something I, I'm sure we can have a discussion about. But the fact that there is a certain tendency in early manuscripts to make that division is mm. significant. The famous apologetics paragraph uh, or, or verse in uh, 1 Peter uh, 3 verse 15, we found a whole load of manuscripts actually dividing that halfway through that verse uh. into two different paragraphs. And again, the fact that this was going on even in the Middle Ages, I think is significant. So um, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then it says always being ready to give an, a, a defense. And that always being ready to give a defense is a sentence without a verb. Uh, and yet the interesting thing is when we laid it out, we find that in our um, in our edition and we ha hadn't seen this before. We actually produced it on the basis of the manuscripts. You have six paragraphs in a row, all of which begin as a sentence without a verb. Uh, and so this is just one of them. And, and so it was finding those things. And all of those things were fact things we found after we had followed the manuscripts. We then looked mm -hmm. and, and see what's going on. So there we yeah. are. Maybe that's longer answer than you wanted. No, it's great. And I think what it does, it reminds me for a preacher and a pastor to get back into the original languages, because as a preacher, you're always looking for the skeletal outline of mm -hmm. a passage. And these paragraph markers are so helpful. So if you're preaching yep. third John, there's your four points. You yep. know, you've got the four exactly. paragraphs. So you have immediately uh, able to get on to the structure of your sermon. Uh, so yep. your homiletical outline now follows your exegetical outline. Uh, and I think that's what I uh, try to talk to the students here about when I teach Hebrew. I, I talk about the other illustration I use is um, reading the Bible is a bit like giving doing an X-ray on a passage, mm -hmm. reading it in the original or an MRI, MRI scan where you get below beneath the skin of the text and you actually see the skeletal outline mm -hmm. with things like this paragraph markers where you put the ethnic accent, you know, in Hebrew, yep. you get the logic of something. And uh, I think those things can be really helpful. That's that's very helpful. Um, so you've done uh, uh, that edition. How long did it take? Ten years uh, with the main person working on it was my colleague, Dirk Jonkent. Uh, and then I joined him in the last few years and we had various other people researching on bits of that. And then we're still going to do further work on that. So we're looking mm -hmm. to the second edition to start reintroducing marking of, of quotations, but only on the basis of early church fathers and manuscripts. Mm. Um, and then um, we're hoping to um, use number abbreviations where they are used in manuscripts and also abbreviations of divine names when they follow manuscripts, these sorts of things, as well as having a, a committee to review the, all the paragraphs uh, and uh, are these right? Uh, so we want because we were really just the first people to try this. Mm -hmm. We want to get them right in the Greek so that people producing English and other translations are able to copy that and hopefully um, do a get a really good job of, of, of uh, representing things. Yeah. Any plans for a Hebrew edition? You see, I'm a bit too old for that. I'm just past 50. And so <laughs> I think you have to start when you're very young um, and have quite... Um, 
specific aims. So, yes, we've not yet. I mean, I, I think there are very good electronic additions. As you know, Westminster has mm. uh, a great Westminster morphology. There are slight improvements that have been made on that. But it's um, uh, I, I think there would be value in working from that then to lay things out correctly, uh, according to manuscripts as well. Uh, that would that would all be really good. Mm. Um, so reading it or preparing a text like that, you're obviously doing a lot of very careful reading, word by word, accent by accent, paragraph by paragraph. Um, let me broaden out a wee bit and talk about reading in the world of academics. Uh, one of the things I say to the students here at Westminster is that we've basically you're you're here to learn three things: how to read, how to write, and how to speak. That's really what seminary is about. And uh, Sunday is about speaking and uh, preaching. But you don't really preach well unless you write well, and you don't write well unless you read well. Right. So uh, as you have been in the academic world, what do you think makes for good reading of a text? Uh, You're there supervising some PhD students. You see scholars every day. Uh, what do you think constitutes good reading in an academic context? Well, I think good reading is slow reading. And we've got to remember that up until about the fourth century, most reading seems to have been done out loud. Um, you can speed read, but you will basically get in the same amount of information as you if you read slowly. And speed reading presupposes that you already need and know what you're looking to find. You go and for it and and you you get it Mm -hmm. but it's unlike a slow ramble over the countryside where you might come across things that you weren't expecting and i think that often we don't know what we are going to learn great discoveries can be made by accident Uh, and so i would say read slowly but obviously if you're going to read slowly and i often read 10 pages an hour uh do you need to make sure you're not reading trash um there are there's plenty of stuff out there which is uh poor there's also plenty of, if I can say, mediocre stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've actually got to um, try and improve it. It's, it's like um, one of the things they say about chess is once you find a good move, can you find a better move? And mm-hmm. once you've found a good book, can you find a better book? Because, you know, people often say, oh, every Christian should read this book. And I think, really? Um, there aren't many things I would say that about. Um, and, and really, uh, we need to be trying to read high quality things uh, that are written well and um, I know there's a tendency for us all to write a lot uh, and and maybe we need to take more time over our writing and and get it right. Mm. Uh, It reminds me of C.S. Lewis who uh, taught at Cambridge for a time and said that we should read less books better Mm -hmm. and deeper you know and and the classic books. Um, Well that brings us to writing uh, you've supervised PhD theses. Uh, you've written some books yourself. Uh, what do you think makes for good writing at the academic level? I mean, I, th- I think different people are different. I actually got to confess, I hate writing. It's the one of the things I, I most dread um, because it is so energy consuming. Mm. I mean, sometimes I can get into the flow of it, but often to organize my thoughts is just, um, it's a very draining thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so I think it's to recognize that writing can be a very hard thing because effectively you're trying to create something new. Mm -hmm. And uh, why should anything that you create new be able to uh, be made without much energy or effort? If you're simply copying, 
what anyone else has done and switching out a few bits. Of course, you can do something easy, but if you're trying to do something genuinely new, it's going to take a huge amount of energy. Um, and so I think you've got, therefore, to um, work out when in the day you've got your most energy and put it towards that writing. Mm. Um, I mean, if someone's just writing in order to relax because they, you know, they're, they're, they're writing, uh, I don't know, some, something to distract them from their main work, that, that may be different. But, but for me, I use a lot of creative energy because I lead an institution. A huge amount goes into the institution. Um, mm -hmm. That's the thing where creative energy goes. And so actually often there isn't much left over for writing um, otherwise, so I think you've got to find ways. I mean, you're on sabbatical at the moment, so um, you, you get the space, the place um, mm. uh, to, to help writing. Um, and really important to read what you write out loud. And even, mm. even I've often had my computer read it out loud to me. I know computers aren't very um, emotional in the way they read things, but just to make yeah. sure that the rhythm of the sentences flow. Mm -hmm. This is what they did with the King James Version, um, mm -hmm. is that they sat in their committees and had it read out loud and people could object if it didn't sound right. That was quite separate from the question of mapping the original onto mm -hmm. the translation was actually, mm -hmm. how does this sound? And I think a lot of people don't seem to write um, uh, something that they expect to be ever sounded out loud because so much reading nowadays is with sub vocalization as they call it where you're yeah. just um and, and they even say suppress sub vocalization um uh you, it's recommended in order to read well, i think well you know if i wasn't if that word wasn't needed there why, why should i put it in in the first place uh, so i would like to think that i would write in such a way that people ought to vocalize it yeah. uh, because otherwise I could have you know, missed that out. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you've read much J.I. Packer, but when I, anytime I've read him, like Knowing God, I think if I feel like he's sitting beside me talking to me. It's yeah. so, so well written. And mm -hmm. uh, that idea of sort of reading it out loud, I'm sure that's what he did in many respects. I remember speaking to a New Testament commentator who'd written a number of commentaries, and he said that he, he read every one of his commentaries out loud before he submitted the manuscript. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, our common friend, Robert Gordon, who's uh, supervised a number of theses at Cambridge and supervised mine, he, I remember him saying that, he said the last 10% of a writing, of writing is editing. Mm -hmm. But he said, but it takes 50% of the time if you do mm -hmm. it right. Yeah. Because you're, you're not just doing one edit, you're doing a lot of edits. You yeah. Know? And uh, I don't know if you know the story he in his Feshrift, he said um, that uh, it was there's one area badly edited where Yahweh goes up Mount Sinai to correct, collect the Ten Commandments from Moses. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, he, he, he said to me, I remember one time he said, um, people are publishing too quickly and too fast and too much yeah. these days, you know. Uh, years ago people just published less but it was far better quality yeah. i mean i used to be a journal editor and so i saw over more than a decade people handing in manuscripts and some would hand in almost flawless beautiful manuscripts and mm. others would be at the other end and there wasn't particularly a correlation between the seniority and fame of a scholar and mm. the quality just quality depends varies a lot and some people have 
uh, very kind editors who are covering up their faults. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you, you should love your editor as yourself and yes. uh, no, be kind to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that brings us to your book, uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, book published by uh, Crossway um, just a couple of years ago, uh, 2018. Uh, what was your reason for publishing this book? Why did you want to put that out there? Well, I've been thinking about it for 20 years. That, that there was a gap, and I had a particular uh, model in my mind, which is F.F. F. Bruce's book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Mm. And it was a very old book from the 1940s and was still being given out um, at, uh, in, in evangelistic contexts and to, to inquirers as this is a serious scholar and if you want the briefcase, here it is. But there were th some things that were rather out of date with that. Uh, I mean, he had illustrated the numbers of manuscripts there were for various classical works and uh, New Testament. And the numbers had changed. But also, he was the very first person to use that illustration. And he used it with great care, where he just simply said, well, for instance, with Caesar's Gallic Wars, there aren't as you know, uh, many copies. And, 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 and he wasn't saying... New Testament manuscripts always outnumber classical works or anything like that. But over years, that argument became corrupted. And I felt that I wanted to put out uh, some newer uh, case, but also um, to be slightly different. So he, I think, tries to come at a slightly neutral angle. And my feeling is uh, I, I didn't want to be neutral. I want to, to advocate for the trustworthiness of the Gospels and particularly to bring things together in a final chapter in which without making any logical leaps, I would nevertheless explain how this all coheres together in the person of Jesus Christ. And but I wanted it to be a short book. And so if I revise it, I'm not going to make it any longer. It's about 37,000 words. It's about four mm -hmm. hours read out loud on audiobook. if you're missing out the footnotes. So I, I think that. There are some great longer books on, on, on the subject. Uh, Craig Blomberg's done a wonderful book, which is very good for theological students because he talks about things like redaction criticism and so on, which I don't talk about at all because I, my audience was, um, well, I thought of engineers as a possible audience, just people who want to know what are the facts, you know, uh, tell me this sort of thing. But also I didn't want to presuppose any familiarity with in-house theological discussions. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I set that all to one side. I give enough references to that so that people can follow up points that I make. But mm -hmm. I didn't want to overload with anything. So normally it's just one reference to a primary source, one mm -hmm. to a secondary source. That was my limit. So that if some, someone should be able to begin that book without having studied the New Testament in any formal way at all mm -hmm. and get what they need to know. I also think that if someone's mildly interested as an inquirer, for you to say, oh, well, here is a 500-page mm. Tom Wright book you could read or a 300-page Craig Blomberg book you could read is not really the right response. Uh, mm. They need to be able to um, begin a book where having begun it for a relatively short while, they can feel they're now so far in that the, the end is in sight and they're going to keep going to the end. So um, that's what I've tried to do. And it, it's being translated into various languages by I hope the end of next year. It should be in 10 languages. 
Fantastic. Are, are you doing some of those translations? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I'm afraid I don't. Well, I think what I appreciated about it, and uh, I confess it was a skim read, but uh, I thought the chapters are not too long. Mm. Um, I like you, you speak in a very layman's la uh, mm. terminology. Uh, you use everyday language. It doesn't get too technical. Um, and I appreciated actually that the footnotes weren't overloaded with all sort of in-house academic mm -hmm. references to other people. It, it was very much for a seeker or an inquirer just to know that here are the primary sources. If you want to go and read up on another secondary source, this scholar will take you down that trail. Yeah. Uh, and, and I appreciated that. Um, you have a chapter in here called uh, Undesigned Coincidences. Yeah. In fact, sorry, before we come to that, uh, just for the listeners, you go into a lot of detail about uh, place names, regions, uh, bodies of water, uh, these kind of sort of minute details that I think readers generally would skip over in, as they read yep. the Gospels. Uh, we're back to that idea of reading the Bible slowly. Um, why do you go into those kind of details? They seem at, at the surface level just so irrelevant. But what is it you're trying to do with those details? Well, I'm, I'm wanting yeah, to slow us down and just to notice the level of familiarity that these writers have with what they're talking about. And I think it's a way in which scripture is designed by God so that if you seek, you find um, so that um, it's actually got the evidence of its trustworthiness within it. And I'm often it might be that you notice that subliminally, you simply process that it seems to be writing in a reliable way. But I'm wanting to take that out and, and make that a little bit more uh, conscious and say, look, uh, we can see here that uh, we can run a number of tests. Uh, and knowing that they didn't have a genre of uh, realistic historical fiction back then, we can say, look, they have a number of these things that they're getting uh, right, and they're non-trivial because you really have to be either from the land mm -hmm. of the events or you have to have had very careful conversations with people from the land. How else would you get the geography and the naming patterns and the biology um, and the social stratification and the tax system, all of those right, um, and, and more could be said. So part of it is also to give people the confidence that the evidence for the reliability is in the text that they can open. So you can open up an English text and it's there. And in fact, get your uh, four gospels and set them alongside, let's say uh, someone else's favorite gospels, the gospel of Thomas or whatever it is. Someone says, oh, I've just read on National Geographic about the gospel of Judas. Or you say, fine, bring it along. We'll have your favorite gospel and my favorite gospel alongside each other. And you'll very quickly see which has uh, got its feet rooted on the ground of reality and which is is more make-believe uh, i mean it, it's fairly obvious mm. and after that chapter on the uh, the details of place names and bodies of water and gardens etc you have this chapter undesigned coincidences do you want to explain what that is and just one or two illustrations yes yeah, so what it is is that um when you have independent witnesses to something um, and you, you, in a sense, like the police might do, you interview them separately. You're looking for, are there traits in their reports which subtly agree with each other uh, in such a subtle way that you can't say they sat together and that they somehow uh, connived 
to make these points agree. So where Mark at the feeding of the 5,000 talks about how many people are traveling back and forth, and that's why Jesus wants to come aside, uh, away from the crowds. And then John tells you it was Passover time. You suddenly have an explanation in, of, of Mark there in John, because, of course, Passover time is when people travel. When Luke tells you the feeding takes place in a place near Bethsaida and John tells you that Jesus asked Philip uh, where to buy bread from for this group. And earlier in John, you've learned that it was Philip actually comes from Bethsaida. You suddenly see a reason for those sorts of details. So it's those sorts of things where often you get the detail just in one gospel, um, but it maps onto what you have in another. Uh, those are the sorts of uh, things that you see within the Gospels. And Lydia McGrew has written a, a book about this um, a couple of centuries ago. John James Blunt wrote a, a book about this, um, Undesigned Ho Coincidences in Holy Scripture. Before that, William Paley um, did that argument for agreements between Acts and the epistles of Paul, or mm -hmm. uh, and also looking at the way Josephus fits into this, that, that you have these... Um, ways in which narratives fit together. Um, th th I think this is a very good argument for truth. Uh, I, I think it's a really uh, lovely book, uh, Pete, that you've produced, really helpful. Um, who do you hope picks it up and reads it? Well, I think that um, it would encourage Christians who've been Christians for a long time. I, I, don't, I think they will, there are new things in there uh, that they can learn. Uh, and, and, you know, for instance, about the frequency of place names per thousand words in the four Gospels. They won't have read that anywhere else before. Um, and it, it's an interesting uh, pattern. You can see that. Um, at the same time, I have designed it so it doesn't presuppose that anyone has read anything on the subject before. In fact, one of my first things is go off and read the Gospels. They're only about nine hours long, all four of them together. Then come and read my book. And I, I think that would work very well. But I wouldn't be embarrassed for someone to hand it to a university lecturer, professor, um, because I, I think it's got the same care put in into it as uh, I would have in other academic writing. Uh, I've checked everything. Um, it's not that there are no errors in there, but uh, there are. it's not a level of error that's uh, atypical uh, in academic writing. It's carefully written. Uh, and uh, we'll weed things out as as uh, people give feedback and uh, subsequent printings. There was a typo in an early printing that's gone uh, and we'll um, make sure uh, things are as correct as they can be. Yeah. And I think it's helpful for readers to know that even though it's a, a short book, 37,000 words, um, as you said, it's 20 years in the making. I think mm -hmm. these kind of books that are that precise and accurate and focused on such a narrow area i think it's helpful for readers to realize they might have time and effort that's mm -hmm. gone into it over the years um so uh, i would just encourage people to pick it up read it for themselves as you said for christians to have a renewed confidence in the trustworthiness of scripture and um and also definitely a book to give to a, a thoughtful inquirer mm -hmm. who's serious about finding the facts uh, and the the evidence for the the trustworthiness of the Gospels. Um, now, you're not just an author of a, a book like this, Can We Trust the Gospels, but you're also the principal of Tyndale House. Uh, so do you want to inform our American listeners a bit, a uh, brief history about Tyndale House yeah. and uh, what your vision is for it? 
Yeah, so Tinder House in Cambridge, England, the original Tinder House, not to be confused with the uh, publishers. Uh, and uh, it's a research centre in Cambridge, England, which is an evangelical research centre for the focused on the Bible. I think it's the largest evangelical Bible research centre uh, in the world. And so people come from around the world. We have uh, a outstanding library uh, and people up, up to 50 or 60 people at a time working at the doctoral level or above are able to be here and um, study. And uh, we promote that research. We also undertake our own research projects. So this Greek New Testament that we've uh, produced is one of those, but we've got a project on Old Testament um, uh, names. We've got a magazine that comes out. So if you go to tinderhouse.com forward slash magazine, it's free. That's aimed at lay people um, and is trying to be a bit like a National Geographic, um, uh, mm -hmm. giving people specific historical factual information about the Bible. Uh, and yet it's not um, using the we of Christians as if it's only addressing Christians. It's actually um, addressing people more generally and saying, uh, here's information about the Bible. Uh, but it's written by scholars and peer reviewed um, by scholars and then uh, actually edited by lay people to make sure it speaks in an understandable way. Uh, we produce a journal, the Tyndale Bulletin, uh, and our aim overall is just to promote Bible trusting scholarship, uh, faithful people who want to serve the church. Uh, we want that to happen around the world. Uh, we believe there, there's need for uh, people right the way throughout the, if I can say, the information food chain, uh, including mm. at, at the higher levels uh, where one can carry out elite scholarship, but nevertheless with a servant heart. And for us, it's very important that they are servant-hearted. We want uh, scholars to be humble, uh, to see themselves as under God's word, uh, and yet see themselves as uh, needing to dedicate every part, every fibre of their being to the careful study of that and then the dissemination of that. Yeah, well, I can speak from personal testimony because I, I lived on the top floor at Tyndale House for four years, Jackie and I, flat nine, which I think is now an office. Is that right? It is, yeah. Yeah, um, so, but we loved loved living there, great community and, and just a wonderful resource, the library, to have access to all those great resources every day of the week, uh, apart from a Sunday. Um, to just have them there, tip of your fingers. No, no one can ever take a book out of the library. Is that still the case? Well, we we that has been the case. Early in the pandemic, we did a okay. brief bit of of lending, and yeah. we, we hope we can stay open enough not to need, need to do that. But uh, yeah. but normal uh, situation, yes, absolutely not. Yeah, you're guaranteed you'll be able to at least look at the book, even if it's yeah. on someone else's desk. Um, what about uh, pastors? Is there a place for pastors to come on sabbaticals and things like that, Pete? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a great place to come on sabbatical. We have uh, people do that. John Piper spent five months uh, at Tinder House. Other people have, have done that. So I, I think it's a great thing. Of course, there are scholar pastors, and that's also uh, an, an important uh, calling. But uh, if you're a down-to-earth pastor who'd be worried um, – would, would uh, the conversation at coffee times be too highbrow? Don't worry at all. Uh, come along. We love to have pastors, uh, people with pastoral hearts, um, and that, that will be great. 
and uh, you, you're celebrating 75 years uh, this year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've been in uh, charge and as principal for at least 10 years now, I believe. 13, yeah, 13 years 13, now. okay. Uh, what is your hope and uh, aspiration under God's kindness and providence for the next 10, 13 years? Where, where do you want to see Tyndale go and what projects yes. do you want to see it undertake? Well, I think I'd like us to grow in faithfulness. I mean, uh, growing in other ways w- w- would be great as well. And for me, the most exciting thing would be a younger generation. Um, so people in their 20s, 30s and so on, um, rising up to take on the baton for the, for the next generation, where we often find that scholars begin their vocation even in their teen years. Um, that, 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 sense, that sense of calling, sometimes it can come later. Um, and so we're very keen to be in touch with people who might be the next generation to help uh, guide them on their way and to see that really internationally, globally, uh, we want to be involved more in mentoring. We are uh, at this pandemic time. We are when we come across um, uh, bright young folk, we are wanting to get involved in online mentoring as well. Mm. And we want a movement, uh, really a movement for uh, Bible faithfulness, a movement of passion about the Bible. Um, so it's not just that you have scholars in a detached way, but actually a, a whole uh, movement which is saying we need to be more biblically faithful. It's got to be practically grounded. It's got to run throughout the church. And we're simply part of that. Mm. I remember you had a tagline years ago. I don't know if it's still part of your sort of mission statement of sort of the academy serving the church. Yes. Is that, so. That's the- I mean, that's certainly serving the church is, is what we're about. Um, yeah. We're using different uh, uh, taglines tag now, um, including uh, the one you, you can have on a mug is be informed about the Bible. I mean, would you right. like to be ignorant or not? But yes, um, yeah. the, our, our core, uh, some of our core principles we've settled on are courage uh, mm. and humility, um, excellence and evangelicalism. Those four mm. uh, guiding principles have been pretty important for us and striking because courage is not very widely found in the academy mm-hmm. uh, and uh, humility is often not very widely found in the mm. academy and recognising that we need to cultivate those uh, are, are important. And Peter, if uh, listeners want to support Tyndale. Uh, prayerfully, obviously, they can get in touch through the website and uh, find out through the magazine how they can be praying. But what about financially? Can people in the States yeah. uh, give to Tyndale to support the work? Yes. Yeah, so there's a 501c3 called the American Friends of Tyndale House Cambridge. Uh, and you can find their website, friendsoftyndalehouse.com, friendsoftyndalehouse.com forward slash donate uh, for giving. Uh, that, would, that would be great. And we'd love to have people come alongside us at any level. Yeah. Well, Pete, look, it's been uh, wonderful to chat to you again, catch up. Um, I miss the days of chatting to you at coffee time and going out to the Red Bull pub for a lunch. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's been nice to have you on this podcast, uh, the afterwards, That's a amazing. conversation on books, reading in the church. And uh, we wish you every blessing for your future writing and also for Tyndale House in particular. Thanks very much. So, God bless. Good to have you with us.